2: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's
3: longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since
2: 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride, sitting in for Abby Dees, who's still in London right now, but she'll be back in just a few weeks. She went without us. I think she's actually in Liverpool today. Oh, my God, with her Beatlemania? With her Beatlemania.
3: Thank oh, you, she'll Facebook. never come back. Never.
2: Well, tonight, we're going to honor the late Mark Thompson with a story about the first Radical Fairies gathering. Steve talks
3: to the folks behind a groundbreaking trans web series called Brothers. Winslow Jones goes straight to Vegas. And we'll talk live in studio to John Copeland's star of the play, Anita
2: Bryant's Playboy interview. But first, the national and international news from This Way
4: Out.
5: I'm Carol Myers.
4: And I'm John Dyer V.
5: With News a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending September 17, 2016. A homophobic U.S. hate preacher has been barred from entering both South Africa and the U.K. Stephen Anderson and members of his Faithful Word Baptist Church of Tempe, Arizona, will not be allowed to travel to South Africa because, referencing the nation's Immigration Act, Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigapa explained that Anderson advocates social violence. The preacher infamously celebrated the June 12th Pulse Massacre in Orlando, Florida, that took the lives of 50 LGBT and queer-friendly souls and injured dozens more, telling his flock that there were now 50 less pedophiles in the world. A petition circulated in South Africa with more than 60,000 signatures called on the government to ban Anderson's entry into the country. It was supported by a bulging dossier on his anti statements and actions compiled by Gay Essay Radio. Anderson has also called on God to rip out Caitlyn Jenner's heart and for the mass execution of gay people to create an AIDS-free world.
4: Those were apparently more than enough reasons for authorities in the United Kingdom to also display the unwelcome mat for Anderson and his flock. In a YouTube posting... Anderson said that he was originally supposed to take a flight earlier this week to Johannesburg with a connecting stop in London. However, he says, they tell me that the United Kingdom has banned me from entering the country and that not only am I banned from the UK, but I can't even go to the London airport. Since he also can't go to South Africa, Anderson has now set his sights on Botswana, which he called a way more receptive place for his message. LGBT people are challenged in that Southern African country by both entrenched societal homophobia and official hostility.
5: The North Carolina legislature's dominant Republican majority and Governor Pat McCrory, who's locked in a tight reelection campaign, have been under incessant pressure to repeal HB2. For his part, McCrory either doesn't understand or willfully refuses to understand what HB2 does, reducing it just to what he calls a common-sense law, requiring people to use appropriate public restrooms. According to a September 16th report in the Charlotte Observer, the North Carolina Restaurant and Lodging Association is trying to broker a deal to end the financial bloodletting. They say McCrory is willing to call state lawmakers into special session to repeal HB2, but only after the Charlotte City Council undoes what prompted the creation of HB2 in the first place and repeal its local anti-discrimination ordinance. The Charlotte Ordinance had extended anti-discrimination protections to LGBT people and allowed trans people to use the bathrooms and locker rooms of the gender with which they identify. It's not even clear if there would be enough votes on the Charlotte City Council to overturn the city's LGBT anti-bias protections. A repeal effort in May lost by a vote of 7-4. to 4. Mayor Jennifer Roberts has also been an outspoken opponent of HB2. It would take seven council votes to override what would be her probable veto if Charlotte lawmakers even approve a repeal measure.
4: In other news, transgender U.S. Army Private Chelsea Manning will finally be getting the gender reassignment surgery she's been asking for since her incarceration more than three years ago. Then known as Bradley Manning, the former intelligence analyst in Iraq was sentenced in 2013 to 35 years in the brig at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, after a military court convicted her of providing more than 700,000 documents, videos, diplomatic cables, and battlefield accounts to the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks. The case has been called the biggest breach of classified materials in U.S. history. She's reviled by some as a traitor and celebrated by others as a courageous whistleblower. A deeply depressed Manning was reported in July to have attempted suicide, and last week she announced that she was going on a hunger strike until she got the transition treatment she needed. Happily, the hunger strike ended after five days. Manning's ACLU attorneys announced on September 13th that the Army would allow her to receive gender transition surgery that her psychologist had recommended in April. They quoted Manning as saying that, This is all that I wanted, for them to let me be me. Proudly trans ACLU staff attorney Chase Strangio said in the announcement that while doctors had also recommended that Manning be allowed to follow female hair grooming standards as part of her treatment for gender dysphoria, the government plans to still enforce male hair standards on her. But Manning will become the first transgender U.S. soldier to ever receive reassignment surgery in prison.
5: In Saturn news, three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning openly gay American playwright Edward Albee, has died at the age of 88. His personal assistant reported the passing on September 16th, though no cause of death was immediately announced. As the Associated Press noted, in more than 30 plays, Albee skewered such mainstays of American culture as marriage, child-rearing, religion, and upper-class comforts. He's probably best known for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the Tony Award-winning play that opened on Broadway in 1962 an Oscar-winning film version starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton followed a few years later. The play combined hilarious dark humor and pathos as the lead characters often viciously turn on each other but eventually reconcile. Despite the frequently eviscerating dialogue fit for a queen, Alvy always denied rumors that the two heterosexual couples featured in the play were originally written as gay men. Sculptor Jonathan Thomas, described by the AP as Albie's longtime companion, died in 2005. I don't like the idea of getting older and older because there's meant to be a time when that has to stop, Albie said in 2001. Dying strikes me as being a great waste of time. That's News Wrap for the week ending September 17, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles.
4: Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community.
5: News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you.
4: Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm John Dyer the Fifth,
5: And I'm Carol Myers.
2: Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. When gay pioneer and former senior editor of The Advocate,
3: Mark Thompson, passed away last month, we combed through our archive for an IMRU interview to play in remembrance, and we found something special that we're going to share tonight.
2: This is an interview that our Charlie Lang did with Mark and Dr. Don Kilhefner back in 2009 on the 30th anniversary of the first Radical Fairy gathering. I'm
1: Charlie Lang, and this evening I'm pleased to have Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson with me on the 30th anniversary of the Radical Fairies.
6: We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle and fairy love. We
1: cast a sacred circle.
7: How did the Radical Fairies come into being? Back in 1978, Harry Hay and I met out in San Juan Pueblo, New Mexico, where he was living. And both of us were concerned about the direction that the gay liberation movement was taking. It was becoming more bourgeois. It was becoming more conventional politics. uh, It was becoming more gay assimilationist. And we felt that there was a need for something in the movement at that time that deepened our understanding of gay consciousness and gay spirituality. And so the radical fairies came out of that kind of understanding.
1: I noticed on the poster from the original gathering that it was called actually a spiritual conference. Can you speak a little bit more to the aspect of spirituality?
7: Well, both Harry and I felt strongly that one of the things that was missing from the movement at that time was an understanding of the purpose of gay people. Why are there gay people? do gay people carry a different consciousness than straight people do? And if that is true, which I think it is, and Harry thought it was, what is our contribution to society from that place of gay spirit, gay consciousness? And so that was woven right into the conference. The subtitle of the conference was, what is the gay dimension of spirituality? What is the spiritual dimension of being gay? Any answers to those questions? Well Harry has come up with his understanding of what he calls subject-subject consciousness that one of the ways that we differ from straight people is that we carry a subject-subject consciousness, same with same, while heterosexual carry a subject- object. Consciousness, And therefore, the way we walk in the world, the way we manifest ourselves in the world will be different. Walt Whitman also came up with there's a difference between gay men that he called adhesive and straight people, which he called amative. Edward Carpenter, an English socialist, one of the great pioneers of gay liberation, came up with the idea that gay people play certain kinds of social roles in society. Evolutionary biologists are telling us the same thing. E.O. Wilson at Harvard is saying gay people carry the rare altruistic impulse in our species, et cetera. So there's a lot of accumulating information that says They got it all wrong. We're not a sexual act per se. There's something else that we're doing in society that allows us to remain generation after generation after generation. And the radical fairies were called together for us to begin talking about deepening and broadening what gay liberation was all about. So I'm thinking 1979,
1: long before the advent of online connections of any kind, how did you go about gathering these men at that time
7: for the first conference. <laughs> well, it was difficult, let me tell you. We, we had to find a place because we wanted a place where it would just be gay men. We didn't want anybody else around. And that's hard to find these days. And we finally ended up at a place out in the Sonora Desert of Arizona, east of Tucson, called the Sri Ram Ashram run by a, a gay man, and Harry and I went out there, scouted it out, and said, yes, this is the place. Uh, it is isolated enough, the nearest neighbors were miles and miles away, it had a pool, it had a commercial kitchen, it had places where people could sleep, that was the place. Then we had to reach people. Yeah. And one of the ways we reached them, thank God for Mark Thompson, Mark came and did an interview with Harry, and during that interview mm-hmm. talked about the gathering, and Mark's article kind of got that out to the rest of the world. And we then also did a a historic leaflet, which also on one side talked about the gathering. On the other side kind of talked about the purpose of the gathering, why we're calling gay men together.
8: That place had scorpions too, Don. (laughs) And rattlesnakes. And rattlesnakes. Uh, (laughs) They didn't tell you about that. No, 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 no.
1: (laughs) Mark, at the time, you were working at The Advocate, Yes,
8: I was just a young gay man living in San Francisco in 1979. I was 27 years old and had already been working for The Advocate for four years and was doing lots of cover articles. And I was uh, aware of the writings of Edward Carpenter and Harry Hay from other sources. I felt that I've always been kind of on a spiritual seeker's path. And 1978 was important for a lot of reasons because, of course, that was the uh, the year that uh, Harvey Milk was um, you know, put into political office, and it seemed to be a benchmark for our community. On one level it was, and on another level it seemed like nothing was really happening. I mean, we were getting political gains, but I felt very deeply that we gay men were kind of in a stuck place spiritually, that we were still using each other and going about our business in familiar old ways and that we needed a new approach. So uh, when we had the opportunity to fly down and interview Harry, so I did this long interview with Harry about his ideas, these seminal ideas, and at the end of the article I concluded with all of the information about how you could find this very remote place in the middle of the arizona desert
1: so can you give us a little bit of a context like how many men showed up
7: and from where about hundred and fifty gay men showed up wow and the great thing was they came from all over north america every city was represented toronto mm-hmm. vancouver san francisco new orleans miami and there were two or three ferries from each one of these places <laughs> and after the gathering was over They went back and seeded ferry gatherings in their own cities. So very quickly, the radical ferries became a decentralized kind of operation, with ferry gatherings happening almost everywhere.
1: And at the conference, was there a structure, per se, or was it kind of made
7: up as you went along? It was both structured and unstructured. We wanted to each day had a structure to it. It began with a great fairy circle where we all got together and talked and shared. And then throughout the different days, there were different things that people wanted to do. Somebody wanted to do a workshop on tantric spirituality, gay tantric spirituality. Somebody else wanted to do something on erotic massage around the pool. Somebody wanted to do, and so people brought their gifts to this gathering. And all of those gifts were woven in to the fabric of what the gathering became. Each day also had a focus to it, and by the end of the uh, gathering, there was a great circle called, and a ritual in that great circle, which was created by the people who were at the gathering. It was Mm. not predetermined, but people wove that ceremony together. So it was a very deep, powerful uh, gathering of gay men, where the creativity created the gathering. There was a structure. But it was a loose structure.
8: I'll never, ever forget that last gathering because there we were in the moonlight during our avocations to the four spirits and to the sky and to the Mother Earth and to each other. And all of a sudden on the outskirts of the, of the circle, we could see this enormous horned bull hmm. just appear as if out of nowhere. Wow. And it just standing there, just looking at us and then it just kind of disappearing. Things like this happened all the time. And don't forget the famous mud ritual that happened on the second day. I think it was John Burnside, uh, Harry Hayes' partner, and others said, well, all this talk and everything is fine, but we've got all this reddish earth, you know. So they found like a little gully not far from the encampment and did a bucket brigade and made this enormous pit of this beautiful, silky mud, and everyone just... uh, stripped and adorned themselves with the mud, put bits of chaparral in their hair, and just did this big clump of a muddy gay man. (laughs) It was a sight to behold. (laughs) It really was.
1: This is Charlie Lang. I'm speaking with Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson about the radical fairies. So, Don, have these gatherings
7: continued to occur consistently? Continued to occur around the world. Around the world. All over the United States. There are Euroferries that uh, meet several places several times a year. A residential ferry sanctuary just opened in eastern France.
1: A residential ferry sanctuary. So it's not just like a weekend ferry gathering. This is a facility where- A ferries- place
7: where radical mm-hmm. fairies live, farm the land, have a relationship to nature, invite people in for gatherings periodically. And it's a place where a core group of fairies live. And other fairies or other gay men who are in need of some loving care, loving kindness, just getting away from the rush of things, can go and stay a week, can stay a month, can stay a year.
1: Don, I'm wondering what relevance do the radical fairies hold for gay men today?
7: I think there are three major ways in which the radical fairies are relevant today. One of them is that they represent progressive politics. We have very little in the way of progressive politics, organized progressive politics in the gay community today. Radical fairies work to increase, to broaden political and social consciousness in our community, supporting liberation movements of women and men, people of color, working people, ordinary people like us, support political candidates that have some kind of integrity and ethics to them so that we're involved in progressive politics. Radical fairies are relevant today because it focuses on gay-centered consciousness. It focuses on those questions of who are we? not the assimilation into the mainstream, but why are there gay people here? Why haven't gay people gone down the drainpipe of history? What are we contributing to society? So that kind of exploration, which I think young people are hungry for, particularly after the decades of empty calories of right-wing assimilationist politics in our community. And I think a third way that's relevant today is around community building. The Radical Fairies put a great deal of emphasis on creating community, healthy community, community in which we can be openly gay, community in which we honor ancestors, requires elders, Uh, there are adults and youth working together, a community that, that has consciousness around the environment, a community that conducts ceremonies and rituals that keeps our community sane and healthy etc etc etc. Those are all questions that I think young people are hungry for today. So I think what we're going to see is a wave of radical fairy consciousness Fantastic. coming into the community. The reality is gay liberation is a revolutionary movement. It wasn't a middle class law reform movement. It was a revolutionary movement based on liberation. We liberate ourselves we're not asking for emancipation. We liberate ourselves and along with that liberation movement came, a liberation consciousness creating a community creating a reality for us that makes sense to us not fitting in to that larger community and the radical fairies are the contemporary extension of that it probably is the most vibrant grassroots gay Effort in the world right now.
1: Well, and on that note, I want to thank you both for uh, your rich conversation. This is Charlie Lang, and I've been speaking with Don Kelhefner and Mark Thompson about the wonderful radical fairy movement in the United States and around the world for the last 30 years.
3: Dear friends, queer friends, let me tell you how I am feeling. You
1: have such pleasure
8: I love you
3: so, dear friends, queer friends. Let me tell you how I am feeling. tell you. Have given me such pleasure I love you so. Such pleasure I.
2: you can stop dancing now.
3: I, well, that was so interesting because I remember when I first, first lived in town, I, I picked up a copy of the L.A. Weekly, L.A. Reader, one of those. And there was an article about the Radical Fairies, which I'd never heard of. And I thought, oh, I want to go play. And then the years went by and I never did. And I thought, oh, those years are behind me. But now that I hear this, I think, I want to go play.
2: They're still around. I know. I don't know if I want to run around, you know. I mean, it would be easier naked. than going to Burning Man or something. But...
3: Well, I know. It, and it preceded Burning Man by quite a bit, didn't it? I think it did. Well, it sounds fascinating. Thank well, you for doing that
2: piece. Speaking of celebration, we went to Michelle Marie Gilkinson's wedding. Yes, we did. On it was a Saturday. lovely Saturday. And that's got me in the mood to think about weddings and the story that you told us <laughs> once about going to Vegas for a wedding. I was mistaken for a heterosexual once.
3: A friend of mine, Janet, was getting married in Las Vegas. As she married later in life and had little family to speak of, it was to be a merry affair at a pirate-themed hotel with Janet's vast circle of friends discharging most of the duties. I was assuming the role of the father of the bride, since the actual one was dead, and my friend Patty, a woman of voluptuous proportions, was stepping in as maid of honor, or matron of honor, or whatever you call the woman with two marriages under her belt who had not yet leapt into her third. Patty and I were traveling on a Southwest companion ticket, so we had to travel together. As Patty's 20th high school reunion was on the night of Janet's marriage, I had to leave with her soon after the wedding ceremony, and there was no time to get out of our wedding togs, which is how we came to be standing in McCarran Airport. All confirmed passengers should now be boarding at Number D. I and my natty rented charcoal gray tux, Patty in a smart, albeit restrictive pink suit, the jacket of which clearly illustrated the expression 10 pounds of baloney in a 6-pound bag. Mind you, the girls had already escaped their confinement once that day, just before the ceremony, in fact, so they were being restrained by the merest of safety pins. This is not a salient point, I just want to draw you the picture here. It was my first time traveling in formal wear, and I thought it was just the novelty of seeing a bow tie in steerage that was causing strangers to appear so interested in us. All too soon, I had the uncomfortable realization that the people in our waiting area were beginning to assume that we were newlyweds. Worse, Patty, who was no stranger to the ways of matrimony, was actively encouraging this fraud. By the time this was all clear to me, there was nothing I could do short of announcing, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but my dear friend, who is otherwise a lovely woman, has only the most casual acquaintance with honesty. So I smiled wanly while Patty explained to inquisitive travelers that our wedding bands were away being sized. A bit of chicanery so clumsy that for a moment I felt sorry for Patty for leaping into the waters of deceit when it was clear her skills in that area were so underdeveloped. This apparently mattered to no one. We couldn't pose for enough photographs or receive enough warm wishes, and since our flight was delayed, and more than once, there was plenty of time for both. Mind you, with the flight being delayed, we now add the element of Patty being on her cell phone, repeatedly calling the classmate awaiting her in Long Beach to let her know that she was running late and that said classmate should go ahead to the reunion and Patty would get there when she got there. These conversations were not delivered in quiet tones, or code, or even Pig Latin, but people still persisted in believing that we had joined the ranks of the Wed. For my part, I had run out of patience and settled into an attitude of resigned scandalization at Patty's impertinence. One would have thought that the most casual observer would surmise, if nothing else, that Patty had married a peevish man and a bad traveler and that the marriage was doomed. But this was not the case at all. It clearly was not what they wanted to see. Or perhaps this is what new grooms all look like. Or, most likely, nobody pays a bit of attention to a groom anyway. When the time finally came to board, the high number on our Southwest boarding pass was waved away. Step to the front of the line, happy newlyweds. And so it went through the flight. There was, of course, the announcement over the intercom that we have a new couple aboard, followed by the sort of alcohol-fueled applause indigenous to Vegas flights. The adorably boyish flight attendant, smartly attired in his khaki shorts and doing a fine job of filling out his polo shirt, kept running free drinks to us. It seemed impolitic to ask his number, considering, but I was rather curious as to just how far he'd be willing to extend his goodwill. I thought I had an ally in the older woman sitting directly across from us. She had been privy to all of Patty's phone conversations and it was clearly having none of it. I felt so bad at being party to such a transparent hoax, I couldn't even meet the woman's eyes. But after landing, as we got up to leave the plane, she grudgingly offered her congratulations and hopes for a glorious future. So Patty went off to her reunion, and I went home to my boyfriend. But for that period of three hours, I felt what it was like to be accepted as one who was playing the game and following the rules. And my, what a big, warm, hearty handshake that was.
2: Winslow Jones. (laughs) Yes. I I haven't heard that for a while. I've Mm. got to say, though, at Michelle Marie's wedding, we were at the Mm. gay table. We were at the gay table. We were basically at the gay table. Yeah. But there was an an older woman who was not gay. I don't think she realized we were the gay table because she took a shine to you. And did.
3: Yeah, yeah. She wanted to make us dance. And I kept trying to explain, I haven't danced since eighth grade. And then you walked her to her car. I did. Well, she was a very tiny woman. And it was late by the time we got out of there. It was a wedding unlike any other wedding I've been to. You got her number? Mm, I think Maddie got it.
2: Hmm. Well, still to come, I talk to the talented folks behind the web series, Brothers. And waiting to come into this very
3: studio is John Copeland, who will sit down with us and talk about Anita Bryant's Playboy interview,
2: The Play. Which we saw on Friday. We did, and it was Terrific, yeah. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
9: Woodstock and beyond, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Woodstock was the monumental music and arts festival that almost didn't get off the ground. When the show's producers failed to secure a location, it was Elliot Tiber who came to the rescue. He secured a permit and persuaded a local dairy farmer to have the festival on his 600-acre farm in Bethel, New York. Woodstock was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, three days of peace and music. Held August 15th to 18th, 1969, it drew a half a million people, making it arguably the largest music festival ever. With performing icons like Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix, its lineup was one of the most legendary in music history. After Woodstock, Elliot Tiber made his way to Europe, where he became a successful television comedian, writer of plays and musicals, and as he put it, a happy gay man who found love. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Kelly Norse.
8: Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest-China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at (laughs) kpfk.org.
10: We're not in Kansas anymore.
6: We must be over the rainbow.
2: Welcome back. I'm Steve Pride. You're listening to IMRU. And I'm Wenzel Jones. While we're thrilled that Transparent did well at the Emmys last night, we want to point out that it's not the only Transpositive series you'll find on Amazon.com.
3: And while we applaud Transparent's Jeffrey Tambor calling for more trans actors in his Emmy speech, the show Brothers, about trans men, was created by a trans man, and all the major roles are played by trans
2: actors. Steve Pride reports. Brothers is an online series that looks at the lives and experiences of a group of trans characters played by real trans masculine men living in Brooklyn, New York. Although mostly, their daily lives are no different than anyone else. The series features a few uniquely trans problems, like Jack, who hides his attraction to men from his trans friends, and schoolteacher Max, who is desperate to raise money for his top surgery.
0: I didn't get the loan. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I can't live with these things for much longer.
11: I wish I could help you. What about raising the money like, like Aiden?
0: No, I, I don't feel comfortable asking people for money like that and I couldn't risk it with work anyways.
11: I know, stupid idea. Can you apply somewhere else?
0: I've literally applied everywhere I possibly can. My credit isn't good. I don't know what I'm going to do.
11: I'm Emmett Jack Lundberg, and I play Jack on the show. I'm also the creator of the show.
0: I'm Will Chrisanda. I'm an actor, and I play Max. I'm
12: Sham Geith and I produce the show.
11: What's the show about? The show is about a group of trans guys in Brooklyn. It's a narrative show and a group of friends. And it's the first narrative series about trans men that also cast trans actors.
2: What inspired you to do this?
11: I got to a point in my own transition, I was about a year and a half into my medical transition, and I realized there wasn't really any media out there that focused on trans men, and specifically narrative media. There's a lot of documentaries, there's great documentaries, I I love documentaries, but narrative is very powerful, and I feel like seeing yourself in a narrative form is a really special thing, and it really, Connects people. So I wrote the pilot script. I showed it to Sham and we kind of were like, why don't we just make this happen?
12: And then when he showed it to me, we kind of looked at it and said, if we really strip this down, we can do this. We did it over a weekend, guerrilla style in New York. It was run and gun and taught ourselves premiere, edited it on the fly, and put it out a couple days later.
11: What was your background? I went to NYU for film school. I grew up in Wisconsin. I moved to New York when I was eighteen for school, and so I've been in New York for fourteen years. I did a lot of work right out of school in the film industry as an assistant, you know, in art, set, decorating departments, which was great for a few years, but it wasn't fulfilling, and I really still wanted to be doing my own work. So, you know, that that kind of led me to to Brothers, I guess, and to, uh, you know, I've, I've done other writing, I'm, I'm working on other features, but Brothers right now is kind of the biggest the biggest thing that I've done.
2: What was the hardest part about doing this?
11: Well, the hardest part about doing any kind of indie filmmaking is always money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was obviously a big struggle for us and a big challenge. We made it work for the first season with the money that we had, and we've done a lot of self-funding, but casting was a challenge as well when we first started obviously the most important thing for me was having trans actors as a trans filmmaker to me that was number one we weren't really known at the beginning and we kind of put out a social media casting call and we got a response from a handful of people obviously Will included there really weren't that many guys who came out for it and it was also two years ago and I think even in two years a lot has changed with trans in the media and people being visible, so I think now a lot more people are willing to be visible and be on screen.
2: Did you learn anything about yourself in doing this?
11: Yeah, I learned how hard it is to kind of be a voice. That's something that I still struggle with, because I know that I'm not the voice of the trans community, even though I'm kind of put in that place sometimes. I can't speak for everyone. I haven't had everyone's experience. I've only had my experience, so... It's a really hard thing to do, and I've absolutely had moments where I asked myself if this was what I wanted to do and be.
2: What did you learn about yourself doing this?
0: Oh boy, just how important it is to connect and to be visible, even when there's moments where you might be a little scared. If you have that safe environment and you're able to open yourself up in your story, especially in the trans community. Growing up, I wasn't much of a reader. I watched a lot of movies and I watched a lot of TV and I identified with the people I saw on screen and I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to be like them. So to see something like this and to know that there's people out there that are watching it and that are connecting with Max, with Jack, with Davin, with Aiden, it's just like I'm so super grateful and proud to be part of it. It's just the best thing in the world is to know that you're part of something like that.
2: What do you want the audiences to take away from this series?
11: For me, it's always been putting something out there that's really authentic and something that anyone can relate to, whether they're of a trans experience or not. Anyone can understand what it means to be falling for someone, to have your heart broken, to be jealous of your friends. Anyone understands that, and I think I would really want people to connect with those human emotions.
2: What's the biggest misconception about trans men?
0: I think personally for me, there's a lot of
11: people that just assume
0: we're all going to have surgery. We're all going to be on hormones. There's some people who choose not to, and that's okay. There's no right way to do this. It's whatever is comfortable for you, whatever you can access, whatever you have support for. And it takes a lot of time. It's not going to happen overnight. Be patient, I guess.
11: Mm -hmm. I also think a lot of people still don't understand the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm. So... There's not an understanding that trans people can be any sexuality. You know, they can be lesbian, they can be gay, they can be bisexual, queer, anything that cisgender people can be. Are the opportunities for trans actors changing? I think a little bit, yeah. I think there's a shift. Mm -hmm. There's definitely more, even in bigger productions, I think there's more of a push to look for trans actors at least.
0: I think there's gonna be writers now who are gonna be like, you know what? I think these stories we need to intertwine into what we're telling in whatever medium that is. I think these are stories that people wanna know about. I have people that I work with that like I never would have thought about the bathroom thing until I saw that season one. Like I didn't realize it's such an issue for you guys. If there's no stall or if there's no door if, and she was like, I'm glad I get to see this. It's educational to me. So it's really cool to know that people wanna know more, I think.
2: Well, how can people see this series?
12: Season one is fully available on Amazon Prime and on Vimeo On Demand. And you can find out all of our information on our website, which is brothersseries.com. You can find episodes and photos and events and all about us. What's
2: the future for this and
11: for you? We're still, right now, really focused on finishing season two. But the big goal is to get this Produced, developed as a full series
12: to get it out to even more people. We're constantly surprised by how many people do get to see it and reach out and say, "I came across this on Amazon," or somebody told me about the show, or "Yes, I've heard of it." But yeah, actually, just, I have, I have yeah. a funny
11: story to tell about that. Um, my mom has been retired for a little while. My dad just retired, so they had a retirement party. I went back to Wisconsin and you know my mom was talking about how she had to talk to a couple people before the party because she hadn't seen them since I started transitioning so she had to explain my parents are very supportive so one of them was a teacher who I had in high school who she had worked with and she started talking to him about it and she was like you know so Emmett obviously is trans and transitioned and he was like, well, actually, I got a recommendation on my Amazon for a show called Brothers, <laughs> so I kind of know. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> so it's getting out there. It's really funny that it's... Any
2: plans to put it together as a narrative feature?
11: I don't know. I mean, right now it feels like it really works as a series, so I think we'll stick with that. But I have all kinds of trans characters that will be coming up in features and other stories.
2: I look forward to seeing that.
11: Yes. Yeah.
2: This has been a conversation with Emmett Lundberg, Will Cressanda, and Sham Gee. This is Steve Fry. Thanks for listening.
3: Well, I think I'll be taking advantage of the boyfriend's Amazon Prime. There's just too much good stuff to keep up with anymore.
2: Yeah, you, you will find yourself, um, what is it, a purging? A purging? I don't
3: know where you're going with <laughs> I this. Don't know. A purging?
2: No, not purging. But uh, you watch them all at once. Oh, per, oh binge, binge, binge watching. Binge watching, yes. You'll find yourself binge watching as I did. I don't have time for that kind of thing. Well, you have... Um,
3: Anyway, there is something delicious at Casita del Campo, and I'm not necessarily discussing the margaritas made famous on that Hyperion establishment, but the show downstairs, which is Anita Bryant's Playboy interview. But just to share the magic of that, let's, let's go to a little special place.
6: Come to the Florida Sunshine Tree For fresh taste and orange juice naturally Orange juice with natural vitamin C From the Florida Sunshine Tree Hi, I'm Anita Bryant Put a little sunshine in your day With 100% orange juice with natural vitamin C From the Florida Sunshine Tree Remember, breakfast without orange juice Is like a day without sunshine.
3: I'm actually old enough to remember that, being on the television, and so is our guest, John Copeland, who has turned the wonder of Anita Bryant's anti-gay crusade into the show, Anita Bryant's Playboy Interview. So welcome, John. Thanks. Well, John. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, for the, for the youngins in the audience, I, I don't know where to start. Do we tell them who Anita Bryant was? Do we tell them what the 70s were like? Or do we, do
10: we explain what Playboy magazine was? Oh, Well, I'll start with Anita because that's kind of easiest. Uh, She was, you know, Miss Oklahoma, and she was runner-up in the Miss America pageant, and she was a singer. She had a couple of hit songs. Let's see. I actually
3: grew up with one of um, her—my dad would play one of her religious albums every Sunday. That's how you knew it was Sunday.
10: Ah, cool. And then, you know, she was also the uh, spokeswoman for Florida Orange Juice for many years. So she was known on TV, like you know, Josephine the plumber. Absolutely,
2: or... I'm from Orlando, so I would hear that commercial like it seemed like every five minutes. And then working at Disney, it was on a loop in Frontierland at the Tiki House because the Orange Bird would be there. Oh, that's promoting right. orange juice. In fact, she came and spent a weekend there, and I got to meet her back in 1976 before she was evil. Wow, I know
3: she was. I mean, we're just establishing she was culturally a big deal at the time. Yeah. And then she turned bad, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Then
10: she decided to overturn a gay rights ordinance in Dade County and started you know basically gave birth to the conservative religious movement a year before Jerry Falwell, you know right. founded the moral majority,
3: well, because I remember I was living in Orlando at the time, and I thought, oh, if it were legal, I would go down to Dade County and vote, you know to this is ridiculous, yeah, and yeah, it was it was absurd. At yeah. the time, but you know, like everything else, you get traction if you, if you pick people and demonize them.
2: And that was 1977. I, I definitely remember that because mm-hmm. I was a big gay me in, uh, in that year. Uh, what was that? You were. I was very gay in 77. Were you I really? Come, I was Mr. Gay Orlando in 1977. I was very gay, gay. Wow. And then suddenly she's coming out with, and there's the first inkling of us fighting backs in Stonewall.
10: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was kind of the 70s was kind of like the disco era, like we were accepted, like, you know, gay people were kind of cool and it was cool to have a gay friend at your disco dance. Well, I know it was cool and it was kind of transgressive, but we didn't we didn't have a lot of legal rights or anything like
3: that at the time. No,
10: no, but but there wasn't the kind of I mean, until she brought it, you know, there Mm. wasn't the kind of, you know, bashing gays. no. That, that you know, went on after, you know, her little movement. So then in the middle
3: of all this, she does an interview with, of all things, Playboy magazine. Yeah. Which at the time, I mean, it's Playboy magazine hasn't been this for a while, but it was a real cultural touchstone. It it meant something to a lot of people. And, and even though it was very geared towards straight men, it was pretty progressive when it came to
2: gay rights.
10: Yeah. And women's rights. And I women's mean, rights. Yeah. You know, it was a pretty progressive magazine
3: just right. period. And people
2: say I read Playboy for the articles but back then they meant it because
3: oh, yeah, they had yeah. amazing articles well and the yeah. interviews were mainly white people would read it
2: yeah
10: yeah i mean this interview with her is you know it's an epic interview we you know culled it down to you know just some very small pieces but you know it it, it was an 8 day interview well and i was surprised to read that your show 80%
3: of it is literally that interview because when you when you see this show and you here are the things Anita Bryant says, you you think he he made that up. But no, he did not.
10: No. Everything yeah.
3: that comes out of Anita and the interviewer is straight out of the, the source material.
10: Yeah. Yeah, it's shocking. But I have to say when I read it for the first time, like in 2014, 2013, something like that. What prompted it, you to read it? I had been a drag queen back in the <laughs> 90s. From like 94 to 96, I performed at Casita del Campo on a show called The Plush Life. So whenever I look to create shows, you know, like drag is always an easy bag to go into. So I had initially thought about doing a show about the anti-feminists. Anita Bryant, Phyllis Schlafly. Gone, gone, gone. Gone, gone, gone. And Maribel Morgan, who wrote The Total Woman. Do you remember her? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then my boyfriend at the time said, do you know about this Playboy article that she did? And I didn't. So he ordered a copy, and I read it, and it was like, well, this just stands right up. So... That's kind of, what was the question?
3: Oh, I forget the question myself, but I, I as, as you're telling me the story, I'm wondering, I, I, I don't think I would ever sit down and read an interview and think, I see a theater piece in this. Because you're not literally just performing an interview, you've, you've made it a theatrical yeah. event that, it's, you know, it, it explains the context and the times, and it you've set it up with a slideshow of pretty much old Playboy magazines, mm-hmm. and you forget, I mean, there's interviews for Apple computers,
10: Yeah, yeah huge
3: yeah. clunky things, and... And the cigarette ads. And I mean, it really gives you an idea of what what that lifestyle was all about. Yeah.
2: The cigarette ads were kind of our version of gay porn back then because they had amazingly good looking guys in the back of all the magazines. Oh, yeah.
10: With, with mustaches. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So why do you think Anita Bryant even talked to Playboy? Because it doesn't seem like it's within her comfort zone.
10: Well, they hired Ken Kelly to do the interview. So Ken could either take it to Rolling Stone or to Playboy. So initially he was going to take it to Rolling Stone, but then Rolling Stone said, eh, so it ended up in Playboy. Mm-hmm. They had to kind of convince her to do it, but, you know, after Jimmy Carter and millions of other luminaries did it, it kind of seemed to be okay.
3: Yeah. Well, Jimmy Carter was a very devout Christian. Right.
10: And even he got in
3: trouble for his, for his Playboy interview. Yeah. He had a lust in his heart. He did. He did. <laughs> See, yeah. we all remember it. How many decades ago was that? <laughs> So anyway, so you play the part of Anita Bryant, and you've got uh, s- Steven, the inter- St- yes, Stephen s- is the interviewer, and Madeline is the oh, she's the centerfold, right? So
10: yeah, yeah, we decided because you know nobody, a lot of people don't remember who Anita Bryant was, right? So we felt like we kind of had to explain who she was and what was going on in the seventies mm-hmm. and what harm she caused. Mm-hmm. So we wrote the character of the Playmate of the Month. She's actually from the issue after this, but she oh. was, yeah. But she was someone that we could find some history on that we could base some things
2: on. Mm-hmm. Well, that actress had actually played Anita Bryant herself. Yes, was that helpful to you? Uh, you know, we. She so, give you about advice? About or?
10: No, not really. <laughs> I mean, I think it's so different when a guy plays Anita Bryant. <laughs> you know, my God,
2: you're a. You're a guy, I am <laughs> well
10: when, when you wrote this, did you initially
3: think, okay, I'm definitely going to do this myself, or did you ever consider writing it and casting a, a mid thirties woman in it? no okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we seem very clear uh, on that,
10: yeah, I mean, you know i um i you know i suppose i don't know, I think it just gives it a, a a little je ne sais quoi um oh i ha- sais quoi. <laughs> To have a, a gay guy play that role, mm-hmm. I think one, it indicates to, you know, gay people that mm-hmm. this is a play about you. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you should pay attention. And mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, just to say her words, I think, I don't know, is empowering or disempowering? Mm-hmm. I don't know which it is. One of those two. I would think, well, strange,
3: I would think. Strange, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what would you say your approach was? Because you're sort of doing the campy gay approach, but it's not straight out camp gay approach, but it's certainly not drag race gay approach. I mean, what would you
10: call it? Um, uh, I don't know that I would. That's a very hard question. I think that the director wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a sit down interview that you were Mm -hmm. watching. He wanted to have these interviews take place along consecutive days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's a party scene and there's, there's a state fair scene and there's her concert. So I guess it's campy. I mean, I don't yeah. – there are parts of it that I think are campy and then there are other parts of it that just aren't. That there were are a few like, moments of
2: audience participation as well that the audience was really with you and in it.
10: Yeah. I, I think, honestly, that's, that's a big – Madeline, uh, the, the playmate of the month, really causes that to happen. She engages very directly with the audience and so does Ken Kelly on certain aspects. Anita does it a little bit, not mm. so much. Lots of costume changes for Anita. Yeah.
9: Well, you know, <laughs> different days. you got to have
10: a different outfit. And you do a
3: good job of opening it up, getting it off the stage, because even when you're having the interview, very often it's not the two of you sitting down just talking. Right. It's like there is a picnic or there is an activity going on. Right. And, and it works really well. I mean, it seems perfectly natural. Yeah, where are they though? When Anita goes, oh, there's Joanne Worley. Oh, that's a party at my house. Oh, it's a party, having a party. Because I thought Joanne Worley is mentioned in this, and she's not here for the opening. Because <laughs> the woman does <laughs> attend openings. With she
2: does. I had no idea. Oh yeah. Oh, didn't we meet her at a Debbie Reynolds? Uh, we met her at Spare? Debbie. Re...
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When she was selling costumes. Huh. Which is totally off topic. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. But <laughs> maybe we should call her. Yeah. I'm sure she comes. She shows up. <laughs> Does she really? Yeah. Wow. Oh,
4: yeah.
3: Well, now, working with the character of Anita Bryant, did mm-hmm. you ever get a sense, because I know why politicians will demonize people because they're trying to build a following, but I don't really understand what people demonize other people. Because I, what did she think she was going to gain from
10: this? I don't know. And honestly, I wonder sometimes if she was really the person who was driving this, if it wasn't her husband. And her pastor who were driving it and using her fame to kind of make their point for them. The thing that strikes me the longer I work with this material is how sad Anita Bryant is during this time. And she's just lashing out. I mean, that's kind of how it feels to me. She's found a scapegoat. It's given her more fame and notoriety than just an orange juice salesman. And she's going for
2: it. I was reading about her ex-husband Bob Green, who yeah. figures into the play, and after the divorce and they lost their money, he used mm-hmm. to jog past a million-dollar mansion and go back to his little hovel where he was basically shut in and very bitter. But mm-hmm. I mean, the gays for everything that happened to them.
10: Yeah, yeah. He more so than she. I mean, I'm not sure how she is about that. Her kids say she's a little. She softened a little bit. Well, and she's had a street in Oklahoma named after her. Yeah. And
3: that's a success that not many of us will ever approach. Hello. So this is at Casita del Campo, Friday and Saturday nights at 9, Tuesday nights at 8 through October 3rd. If you want tickets, go to brownpapertickets.com. I can't believe we're out of time already. I know. I actually have written questions that I haven't asked. Is there anything that we missed that you totally want to get out there?
2: Um, No. Okay, well, thank
10: you. <laughs> There's, there are naked pictures in the show, and we serve jello shots.
2: Yes, yes. I didn't get one. Did you bring one for us? Uh,
10: you'll have to come again. <laughs> well, thank you so
3: much for coming to the studio and talking to us tonight, John Copeland. And it was a delight to discuss the show and just talk about Anita Bryant with somebody who's kind of around at the same time. Mm. Well that's it for tonight's show. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer Steve Pride, tonight's director Matthew McLaughlin, board op Federica Garcia, our media goddess Miss Barbecue, and our Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian
2: Burns. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon and online at IMRU Radio, IMRU and if you go to our Facebook page,
3: give us a like. We'll close with Rod McEwen's Don't Drink the Orange Juice, which he released during the national gay cot of Florida Orange Juice in response to the Anita Bryant campaign.
6: Good night. I go to Florida a lot, because the weather's always hot. There's pretty girls and pretty boys. As many Jews as there are goys. As many blacks as there are whites. As many days as there are nights, as many straights as there are games, yes they have fun in lots of ways, ah but don't drink the orange juice, I beg you please, don't drink the orange juice, I beg you please, don't drink the orange juice, I beg you please, might lead to all kinds of bigotry. Beach at Pretty Sand, as nice as lovely summer camp. The Cuban music is the top, and all the discotheques and hops. As Heady sailing in the Keys, and all the sharks are out to sea. Yes, Florida's a place to be, but won't you take a tip from me?